I, I'm not sure. We could be in a simulation, according to Maybe Elon we Musk. We may not have. We may be on our second, you know, iteration. Never know. Elon Musk actually said that. He says we might be in a simulation. And it, if, if a simulation is our version of reality, he might be right. Because it's just a different name for what we're living in. <laughs> okay, whatever he says. Be interesting to find out who's running the simulation, though. Anyway. Yeah. Um, it's the it's white mice. Simulation. The white mice. Got it, got it, got the it. scientists are the white mice, and they're running a simulation to answer the great question. The great well, question think- of life, the universe, and everything. Once more under the breach, dear friends. Hells, fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and... Jeff McClure. We are both bald, and the first disclosure is that our definition of what an exciting episode may not be the average person's definition of excitement. For us talking about the Federal Reserve's minutes, we are on the edge of our seats. Hopefully we can bring that excitement to you, maybe, possibly, though I have tried it with my soon-to-be um, eight-year-old, and, um, and I'm missing some things to get that across. I don't know how I can get my excitement over the inversion of the yield curve across to her at this point. I'm going to work on it. Uh, it. It'll be okay at some point. Um, the two of us, Jeff and Jake, are also the principals at another place called The Personal Wealth Coach, not just this radio program. It is a registered investment advisory firm, registered with the SEC to give fiduciary advice. Does that mean that the SEC approves of us or gives us kudos, uh, attaboys, um, thank you very muches, or thumbs up of any kind? Any other emojis for that matter besides fixed stuff? No, they don't. They don't do that. They, in fact, if anyone ever claims that they are approved by the SEC, um, that's kind of a violation of the SEC's own rules. So, no, they're not going to, they, they don't approve stuff. They do often disapprove things. So, uh, that is their job. Their job is to say no, not to say yes. There. Um, we're also, we're registered to give fiduciary advice. What does that mean? It means advice in the best interest of the person receiving the advice. But we can't do that on the radio. Why are we doing the radio then? Well, to educate you. This is not paid commercial program. We are not paid to do this either. We were just looking at this with the new year. I've been doing this for 25 years. Uh, older Baldy here, uh, you, you did it for what, 27 now? And you were in radio back before the hills got dusty as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Those are disclosures so far. The SEC doesn't approve of us. We're not paid to do this. We don't pay to do this. We do buy advertising on the studio's station studio, the radio station yeah yeah this the radio station about the radio program so we actually don't advertise our business we read we advertise the program um and of course the most important disclosure of the day has not been given yet which is that we're bald no, we're no. Not, that is very important though i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna say that's the most important one 
I think the fact that the information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the completeness or accuracy of said information. See, you only think that's the best one because you get to say warranty, guarantee, deem, accuracy, and completion in the same sentence. Right. And I think it's really cool. Yeah. If you say that at a cocktail party, um, first off, I've not been to a cocktail party in a lot of years. Why do we still say that? Um, but if you said it at a cocktail party, um, you would either be the center of attention or not. But that's true of almost anything you could say there, isn't it? Well, if, if you see if, at cocktail, I can't remember when I've been to a cocktail party. I mean, it's like a, it's a piece of phrasing that still stuck around. Is this from the 60s too? Did they I think so. have cocktail parties? I mean... I, I guess and I missed them because I wasn't in the correct socioeconomic strata. Right. Could be. I don't know what rooster tails have to do with parties anyway. This is very strange. Um, I have some interesting stuff to bring up, but before we do that, we've got a question hanging out there from Inquisitor John, our most faithful and loyal questioner. It has been, uh, he, he has sent us more questions than just about everybody else combined, and we appreciate that very much. Thank you, John. Um, his question is, well, this, it's an email. The subject line is, this time it's different. Does the personal wealth coach believe things are getting back to normal, or is crisis the new normal? And the headline of the Wall Street Journal that he sent us is, investors had it easy last year, but not anymore. And he's circled a paragraph of that article. Um, and it starts with, it might be time for investors to return, to return to the old thinking. After three years of everything being extreme, things are finally returning to normal. And there's a lot more about this, but bubble bursting, pa uh, pandemic strangeness, and now we're back to normal. And, and his, his question here is, do we, things, do we think things are getting back to normal or is crisis the new normal? And our answer is in between that. Normal is crisis swinging to not crisis and back to crisis. That's what normal is. <laughs> well, I read the article actually when it was published. So John and I were on the same track in that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's the Streetwise article from, um, from the Wall Street Journal. And first off, Mr. McIntosh often has a lot of good things. James McIntosh writes that. He has a lot of good things to say, but he missed it this time. I can tell you for a fact that it was not easy to invest last year. It was not easy to figure out whether we were... I mean, in with 2020 hindsight, we can... And we said this at the beginning of the program. With 2020 hindsight, you can always look back and say, well, the signals were clearly there that the market was going to go down and bonds were going to collapse because inflation was high and the market was uh, overbought with crazy stuff going on out there. Yeah, yeah, we said all that. But is how crazy stuff can go on a long time. In 1994, the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, Chairman Greenspan, talked about irrational exuberance, but the irrational exuberance didn't bear fruit until 2000. In other words, for the next six years, we had a runaway bull market after the market, in his opinion, was already overpriced and everything was out of whack and it was scary to be there. And you, what followed was six years of bull market. So it's not easy to forecast what's coming. The market can get overpriced and get more overpriced and yet get even more overpriced and stay that way for a long time. So it takes a lot of patience and a lot of wisdom. And I think experience helps too. 
Now, is it, is it, should we get back to normal? No, we're not going to go back to normal. Are we going to stay in crisis? No, we're not going to stay in crisis. We're going to have a new normal. Well, I'm, I would like to even say, what is normal? I mean, if we go back, you said 94, and during the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, all the way back to the mid-40s, we've had a cycle of recessions about every four years. That's a move on a four-year period from boom to bust. There's crisis in recessions every time. There are always crises in recessions. What's the normal part of that four-year cycle? And I would say it's the whole thing. The whole cycle is the normal part. We have these swings where we get overly ambitious and these swings that we get underly ambitious or lose our ambition altogether. What's normal in there? Well, the whole, the whole spectrum is. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that we've seen is over the last decade, we had a new definition of normal, like Jake said, what's normal. Yeah. Um, but we need to, to very carefully look at what it return to normal, as he's referring to, you need to very carefully make look, make take a heavy, strong, long look at what you consider normal and what the reasons are behind it. For example, every person I talk to who is a, who's a serious investor who has any idea what's going on out there, all agree, all agreed until, and there's still many of them. There's still articles in, in Morningstar and other places saying the 60-40 portfolio is still the place to be. That assumption is based on the fact that interest rates peaked at a very high level in 1982 and then came down through 2002. So there was a long period of 2002, 2022, what am I saying? There was a 40-year period during which interest rates occasionally would bump up a little bit, but the trend clearly was down for 40 years. That is considered the old normal. That is the return to normal is that bonds will be safe because interest rates will continue to go down. But no. if, if you look at the preceding 40 years of that, you have a steadily climbing interest rate during that normal time period. So where's the normal? Uh, well, the, we, we were, cycling in, were cycling into a new one. And I yeah. think, uh, I, and this, is just, this is just purely my opinion, is not a forecast of the future. It's an educated guess. But I think through... The 2020s, you will probably see interest rates relative to their previous decade, relatively high and probably climbing intermittently. And still, if you look at the long term, there'll be a trend upward in interest rates through the 2020s. That's yeah. just my guess. Now, and, that's and, not a forecast of the future. And I'll throw this out there. In, in the buildup to the Great Recession, which was fed by cheap loans... The interest rates are what we call cheap on that. And those interest rates are still higher then than the mortgage interest rates that we see today. Mm-hmm. Those cheap loans that fueled that speculative frenzy that led to robo-signing in Florida and all these big collapses of mortgage-backed securities and all that stuff that we called the Great Recession, those cheap loans were more expensive than the mortgage loans that we're looking at as expensive today, which means that we have more upward movement potential in interest rates easily more to be part of a normal long-term history in economics. That means that we will likely see higher interest rates. That's the educated guess from both Baldies there. Um, you You can... 
tell people where you're getting these guesses. And if you refer to us as the Baldies, then um, people will respect you more because we're famous through... No, we're not actually, but it, it, we would appreciate the kudos. The Urals oil price. Now, there's two big oil prices that are quoted around the world. There's what we quote in the United States, the West Texas Intermediate. Then there's the European quote, which is the Brent crude. Brent is the their North, North Brent. Yeah. So North North Sea Brent, yeah. Um, so those are two different types of oil, and there's lots of different types of oil. Those two are quoted because they're kind of the easiest standard for refining. You can get diesel out of them very easily. You can get gasoline out of them very easily. It's, it's a kind of sweet crude. I don't know who it is that tastes it to figure out if it's sweet. I wouldn't want that job, just saying. But there's, an, there's a quite a number of other indexes out there. But one that's very important is the Urals, U-R-A-L-S index. What is, what is that? It's the price that the Russians get for their oil because that's where it's from and that's the name of the oil there. Uh, and it's in the, in the mid $50 a barrel, 56 or so at this point. So why is that important? Because the Europeans and the Americans put a price cap on that oil if you're a tanker company and you're going to ship this oil from Russia uh, to the places it's going to be refined or to a, a direct buyer somewhere. You need insurance on your tanker. And all the insurance companies, well, I don't think there's any oil tanker insurance companies based in Russia. You got to go to somebody else to get insurance on those tankers, even if you're a Russian ship. And nobody wants to sail through war-infested waters in a non-insured tanker. So nobody's giving insurance if the oil is sold above $60 a barrel. Why is it selling in the mid-50s? If there's a price cap at 60 and anybody else can get it at 80, that's what we get ours at. And the answer is nobody wants to touch it. They're not sure when that price cap gets lowered. And if they just bought it for too much money, that same oil is still Ural oil, and it's still going to have a price cap on it when they go to sell it. So people don't want to touch it. People aren't buying it. And that's, that's a big piece of news for Russia because three-quarters of its federal budget comes from the sale of oil. And that is going to be a telling sanction during the Ukrainian conflict. There you go. That was my uh, dovetail nicely into that headline to make it a big one. That we're, we're, oil prices are down across the board, but Ural's oil is way down. Well, it's also not being bought by a lot of people. Right. And that's like, why it's the Europeans down. are simply not buying it. And, and then uh, there are a lot of insurance companies that won't insure ships that are carrying oil from Russia. So it's kind of, it's, yeah, it's cheap oil, but it's helping us. It is. And, and uh, that's good. We're, we are, uh, we're able to sell our oil at higher prices. The United States, unfortunately or fortunately, has benefited very much from the Ukrainian conflict. Um, fortunately in that it's helping us, but unfortunately the reasons why we're doing well. 
Uh, Russia is basically excluded itself from the national trade community in a lot of areas, and we've benefited from that. Well, there's an interesting article that I read. I think it was in The Economist that makes some sense out of this. Oil in the United States would be about $60 a barrel if it were not for Russia. And the reason I say that is Russia's isolation has produced a shortage of oil in the world. Mm -hmm. And the price of oil went up. And we are one of the world's premier exporters of oil right now. As a matter of fact, I think we're exporting more oil than we're consuming domestically at this point. And so the world oil prices, which we thought we could insulate ourselves from by being a big oil producer in the United States, by being energy independent, which we technically are in one sense, uh, we, we produce enough oil to supply all the oil we need. We just don't have it the right places. We don't have the pipelines to get it there. So therefore, we export a lot of oil. But since oil overseas is selling, Brent, matter of fact, Brent crude, sells for more than West Texas Intermediate, even though the Brent crude is technically a higher quality of oil. But still, there's a shortage of oil around the world because of the Russians. As a result, we export a lot of oil, which causes the price of oil in the United States to be higher than it otherwise was. So the, one of the great ironies is in the process of becoming energy independent and an oil exporter, the United States has, result, has resulted in higher cost of fuel at the, at the gas pump, which is backwards from what you would think, which is the way economics works. A lot, of thing, a lot of things that you think are common sense, just plain common sense, we should just do it this way. Uh, any idiot can look at this, and that's the point is, any idiot can look at it and see that it should be done this way. Um, it turns out that right now, because we are a major oil exporting country, we're paying more than we would be if we weren't. It, it is the re reverse psychology of the marketplace. It's true mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, and it's true in everything, in, in, in the... In the demand that we cut our spending in the United States to the point that we no longer have to, the Treasury no longer has to borrow money. That is a, a very deep, gutly, gut felt belief by a lot of people. The fact is, were we to do that, we would put ourselves probably in a depression. Yeah, and probably the rest of the world too. And this is weird because where do other countries go? to protect their assets. There was a time when everybody went to gold to do that because there wasn't really a big standard. And then people went to doubloons because they, that, doubloons, yeah, Spanish currency, right. way, way back. And then they went and to the, the pound. The pound. And then they went to the dollar. But it needed to be a currency that had extremely high quality and good controls on its inflationary or deflationary direction. All of those did. And a very, very large volume. Had to have enough of it to go around so that these other countries could preserve their reserves as well, the smaller economic countries. The dollar is that now. And the dollar is debt. And the... U.S. Treasury bonds are where most of these other countries go to get their dollars. They buy a bond that's going to pay them in dollars. And that bond, first off, we have to get those bonds paid. Let's not do a don't raise the debt ceiling type thing. Let's not shut down the government. Second, there's nothing out there with the volume that we have to replace it. So if we stopped borrowing money, the entire world economy would be put into peril, which is like 
it's the backwards of everything because we don't want to have overly much debt. We want to have debt that we can afford and no more. But we also, technically speaking, if we want peace in the world, we don't want to have zero debt either. How's that for craziness? <sighs> it's that, but that's a diplomatic truth that governments need to understand and generally do. One of the major causes of the Great Depression... The Great Depression, by the way, started off as a recession, and it would have stayed a recession if not for two things that have occurred. And one of the, probably the major thing was, at that particular moment in time, just under 100 years ago, conservative, fiscal conservatives controlled Congress and the presidency, and they determined that we should not be in debt. And what they determined was, as tax revenue went down, the government would spend less money. So as the tax revenue dropped into that, that recession... That seems common sense. The Congress approved lower and lower and lower spending by the Treasury. And of course, as the Treasury spent less and less and less money, more and more people lost their jobs as there was lower and lower and lower tax revenue. And so we went into this vicious cycle that ended in about 1934 of the, the economy slowing, government revenue going down, and the government spending less money. And the less money the government spent, the less money was being spent across the board. And people were getting laid off. Military people were getting laid off. Government employees were getting laid off, which meant less revenue was coming in. And they were spending less money in the economy to generate even more revenue. This is a feedback we, loop. This is, this we is just, feeding on itself. And of course, the Federal Reserve wasn't helping things because right through 1934, they were raising interest rates to fight inflation because there were two things that everybody seemed to be afraid of at the time. One of them was debt and the other one was inflation. The result is we got a depression that created a world war where the government borrowed more money in relation to the to the economy than we have borrowed today, which is pretty astonishing. Um, and by borrowing a tremendous amount of money, they dumped a uh, not a huge debt, a huge rush of prosperity upon the country. The post-war economic boom was largely due to borrowed money by the United States government. Now, can we borrow too much money? Certainly, it's possible to borrow too much money, but that doesn't mean that we should be working really, really hard to balance the budget. Because if we balance the United States budget, literally at this point in time, if we balance the United States budget, we would go into a depression. And I know that sounds crazy. The easiest solution I know of is if you own a dollar bill. If you pull out the dollar bill, you look across the top and it says it's a Federal Reserve note. It's signed by the Secretary of the Treasury. It is. It constitutes debt of the United States government. Money, our very money, constitutes government debt. Eliminate government debt and won't have any money. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in a memory. We can throw back in time here. Go back in time to the end of 2018. Um, on our radio program, we were talking about the times were really amazing. We were moving into a trade war. This was a good time to do that experiment because the booming economy and Things were going really, really well. We also did a whole segment on now would be the time to balance the budget. Because in a normal household, you tend to want to balance the budget when things are really bad and you've already grabbed up all the debt and you if you really shouldn't be pulling back, you should be moving forward, you should be getting more education or whatever to get more income. Um, we're, the time to balance the budget is when things are going really, really well. Unfortunately, the wake-up call to the spenders tends to happen when times are bad, not when times are good. 
So if you do the knee-jerk reaction at the governmental level or at the corporate level for earnings and so on, when things get bad, you balance the budget. That tends to lead to slower growth or shrinkage and you go away and bankruptcy in the case of corporations. It's weird and it's backwards because in a family situation, you do balance the budget when things are bad and you slow things down. Somebody has to be the lender of last resort. Somebody has to be the one with the deep pockets that steps in and says, times are bad. I may make a profit doing this, but I'm going to contribute a bunch of money to the economy to pull it out of this funk. And JP Morgan did it famously in 1907. The United States government has done it in the pandemic downturn. Both the Biden and Trump administrations is issued stimulus. That's the, that's the, this might cost us money today, but it'll make us money long-term because we won't lose as many employees and tax revenue will stay up. And then we had a series of years with really, really high revenue to the U.S. government. Now, we increased spending <laughs> during that time as well, which isn't necessarily the smartest thing. But what we're trying to say is that some debt is good debt. We just need to get Congress to understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. There. We're about out of time for this hour. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized uh, for our individualized clients investment advice and portfolio management. And you can reach us uh, locally. We have voicemail waiting on the weekends, but real life people during the week, no phone tree at... 254-947-1111. Or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com if you prefer, where you can read our newsletters, sign up for our newsletter, read what they said years ago to see if how accurate we were. Uh, there are... Radio program is there as well, and you can find the podcast anywhere that podcasts are provided. You can contact us through our contact form or directly through email at jeff at tpwc.com and or jake at tpwc.com. And we actually read those things. Strange, I know. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening to uh, two bald, boring men talk about finance. And until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.